Okay. Oh, I've not written an intro. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll just riff it out. Hi, I'm Andy Zoltzman. (laughs) (laughs) That works well. (laughs) That's a good start. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers. Uh, Welcome to issue 4,231 of the world's leading and only audio newspaper for a visual world. I am Andy Zaltzman, here in London, and joining me from three feet away across my dining room table, I'm delighted to say I have both Alice Fraser and Anuvab Pal. Hello, both of you. It's, it's, It's wonderful to have three people in the same place. It feels like quite a long time since... The bugle has been done in this way. Welcome. It feels very. It feels really nice to be human again once more. Because I've been, you know, on the far end of the world with all of this excitement going on. I'm so excited to be back in London. The Millennium Dome, the 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 Magic Eye, um, <laughs> the Tate Modern, or you don't call it the Tate Modern, you call it the Potato Modern. <laughs> it's good to be back. Uh, we should say, Alice, you just arrived from Australia uh, yesterday. Yes. So you are in the wrong time of day, essentially. Yes, I said, Andy, can I come stay with you for a couple of days when I land? And you said, yes, do you want to do a bugle on the Monday? And I <laughs> said, yes, thinking, you know, I've done, I've backed up after a 24-hour flight before. You know, I've done <laughs> yeah. that before. I'm completely capable of doing a 24-hour flight and then the next day, you know, writing some comedy. What I had not factored in is my seven-month-old baby <laughs> <laughs> um, who makes a 24-hour flight. Just It just feels like so much more quality time. <laughs> Look, you know, I was honestly never hoping to see the two of you again. <laughs> I thought the way the pandemic was going, I was going to record in a little room in India. And I have to say, sitting in your house, Andy, this feels like a bit of India. <laughs> There's a lot of cricket in this house. <laughs> I feel, I, I don't feel out of place at all. I feel right. very comfortable. But it is, it is a little, a little uncomfortable because I really was hoping to see both of you in a little box for the rest of my life. All right. It's okay. <laughs> very sad. Well, that can be arranged. Um, we're all in a, in a sort of, it's essentially a kind of global Stockholm syndrome we're in at the moment, trying to work, trying to work through it. Um, I should say, behind Anuvab's uh, head at the moment is a uh, sculpture of me, uh, which we will post a, a picture of, done by my sculptor father, when I was about seven years old. And, uh, and how would you describe this? Do you think it captures what I am? No, I think I was quite a serious child. And that, yeah. did he, did, was it meant to be a vision into the future or was it meant to be of you as a seven-year-old child? I've no idea, really. Because yeah. if it's prophetic, then it's sort of accurate. But if, yeah. it was at, if that's meant to be a picture of a seven-year-old child, it's not very accurate. But also... <laughs> It confirms what I've always believed, which is that behind every great man there's a creepy statue of Andy Zaltzman. (laughs) (laughs) Andy, if I saw this in a museum, the statue would be called Boy Who Misses Catch 7. (laughs) (laughs) That would be very accurate indeed. I missed a lot of of catches. One of my earliest memories of playing sport at school, I was about eight years old and we did catching practice. And anyway, to catch a tennis ball and throw it back to the teacher. It's the kind of early journey into cricket. And I dropped the catch and I had a really feeble throw. And the teacher said, Zaltzman, I am ashamed of you. 
but did not then tell me what I should be doing better. <laughs> and that has stung me for almost 40 years. Is that a then. fair summary of British education? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Admonishing without any yes. ways to improve. Absolutely. And that is why we are the glorious nation we are today. <laughs> Yeah. Because we have been browbeaten. They plant seeds like that and you just stew on them for 40 years and then go conquer somewhere. That's, yeah. yeah. It's never let us down. Why, why change your winning formula? Um, anyway, we are recording on the 30th of May 2022. Uh, on this day in 1431, um, Joan of Arc uh, became a, uh, well, unwilling. Uh, uh, barbecue sausage uh, in uh, another classic piece of uh, uh, British justice. On the 2nd of June in 455 the uh, Vandals entered Rome and plundered Rome for two entire weeks and they haven't entirely got around to fixing it since then uh, if I remember my uh, delightful uh, trips to Rome in the past. A few, <laughs> few new ice cream shops, not a lot else. A lot of missing penises in Rome. Yes. But present-day Rome or imperial Rome? <laughs> yeah, no, present-day Rome, every statue. I mean, like well, how do you know they weren't, that wasn't accurate at the time? And the penis maybe did not evolve until post-Roman <laughs> post times. Post-Rome, that's why they got so much done. <laughs> <laughs> I've just taken the wrong tours of the city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sack of Rome, is, that's taking on a different, different meaning now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Can we all grow up, please? Uh, in the year 1098... <laughs> show, Andy. He said to your statue. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, on, in the year 1098, the first siege of Antioch mm. ended. Uh, in That was part of the first crusade. Uh, and the second siege of Antioch began five days later. <laughs> now, that shows the stamina professional uh, siegesters had back then. Uh, nowadays, they'd be wanting at least six months off to rest, recuperate, <laughs> analyse uh, on the video what happened in the first siege, plus build up the anticipation in the media, get the hype going, and sell more pay-per-view tickets for the second siege. But not back in 1098. You just did your siege. You had five days off to check whether you were alive, dead, or in between, shake off the odd bout of plague or dysentery, and then get back to business. Um, have we moved on as a species? I'll let you be the judge of that. That's incredible. So much Antioch in only five days of pro-Oc. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's typical of the negative, <laughs> negative uh, mindset of the late 11th century, Alice. Um, interestingly, according to Wikipedia, those are the only two things that ever happened on the 2nd of June before the year 1600. Really? Yeah. I get there was a lot of years before then, uh, between 5,600 and 13 billion, depending on uh, which version of uh, the history of the universe you believe. So it was a pretty quiet day all round. Maybe it was June. a bank holiday. It's quite possible. Yeah, I guess yeah, we'll never know. What's the difference between just a war and a crusade? Does it have to be religious for it to be a crusade? Oh, I don't, I don't know etymologically. I think the difference between a war and a crusade is the same, uh, you know, like because... Uh, Sadism it comes from like pain, so that's kind of war related. Yeah. So it's the difference between a war and a crusade is the difference between a ship and a cruise ship. <laughs> um, so like they're basically the same thing, but more angry old people, I think. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. Because could you have a general in a crusade saying this is just turning into a shitty little war? <laughs> As always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, we have a special puzzle for you. Um, now, Vladimir Putin has been accused of exacerbating a global feed, food crisis by stealing grain from the Ukraine. Now, uh, for all uh, bugle listeners, we have a special bugle brain teaser. You've got a rowing boat, 
There is a bag of grain, Vladimir Putin, who is, as previously discussed, a chicken, and a fox. <laughs> How do you get them all safely across the lake to the International Criminal Court? Bearing in mind that the fox is Edward Fox, the actor, <laughs> in his role as an assassin from the day of the jackal. Please send your answers by surface mail to an address of your choosing and mark your envelope, Will We Never Learn? <laughs> Total societal collapse news now, and the United Nations has warned that global collapse is becoming uh, more likely in a new report. A report in which some have claimed was actually watered down before being published, but still warns of total societal uh, collapse. Now, Alice, as our um, entire collapse of human civilization correspondent, uh, a role which you fulfilled with um, great uh, dignity over uh, recent years, um... I mean, is this really the kind of language that's going to grab people's attention, warning of total societal collapse, rather than, for example, you know, a long-term internet outage? Is that not more likely to get people Look, at any, I think what in? you need to do is, is remember the first rule of writing and show, don't tell. Uh, so what you need to do is have a total civilizational collapse and then people will um, get on board with it as a, as a news item. That not a single major newspaper picked up on the total civilizational collapse bit of the of the UN report they instead focused on a bunch of other parts of the report including you know yeah keep spending money and and building up your economies which is sort of the bit that I don't think we really should be doing I haven't been this disappointed since I found out that the art of war wasn't one of those expensive coffee table picture books (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the report notes that at least four of the nine planetary boundaries are uh, outside of the safe operating space for temperature. Oh, that's still five out of nine that are fine, then. I mean, that's that's a majority, so we're still winning, essentially. Yes, yes, we are winning, except all of the people in those dangerous places are heading to the places that aren't quite as dangerous, which will make those places more dangerous, <laughs> civilizationally speaking. The report lists a bunch of cities that will be underwater by 2050, and both where my parents live and where I live... Um, are the first five on that list. Uh, And the only happiness there for me is that I'll hopefully be dead by 2050. (laughs) But but it's uh, Mumbai and Calcutta are right up there. One, because it's in the Ganges Delta, and the other because the Arabian Sea is going to go batshit crazy. (laughs) It already has four cyclones in off-season. So um, I have chosen well, Andy, in where to live (laughs) because they won't exist as places. Well, I guess if the whole uh, planet's going to have societal collapse, then it doesn't really matter where you've got anywhere to live or not. So, you know, let's look yeah. on the positive side. I just want to say it varies for person to person because lately I've, I've been in this country now for a month and a lot of people have been complaining uh, about, like, a complete societal collapse. And it varies because for one person, it was the fact that he couldn't get Brussels sprouts at the local co-op. And he said in the local paper, society is collapsing. <laughs> and another person I read in the paper missed his flight from Manchester to Austria because there was a six-hour wait in Manchester airport. Apparently, there are no people, so there are queues outside the airport. And he said, civilization has ended. <laughs> he wasn't getting a refund. So it is very personal. Right. And I'm going to yeah. lose both the towns I grew up in because they'll be under the sea. One guy missed a flight and one guy can't get Buster Sprout. Right. So I think it's, it varies, yeah. I think. It, it manifests itself in, in, in many different forms. Uh, fortunately, here in Britain, we don't need to worry about total societal collapse, either in this country or indeed the rest of the world, because 
This week, we have a jubilee. Ah. Marking 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II uh, being uh, on the throne, reigning uh, gloriously, uh, happily and victoriously, I think, uh, if uh, I recall the national anthem, which I'm a bit rusty on. Um, the uh, alarming news, the Archbishop of Canterbury has been ruled out of jubileeing uh, due to uh, due to COVID. So I don't know uh, they're going to get the leader of another major religion to, <laughs> to step in, which um, could liven things up a bit. Um, I mean, it's... It's just so wonderful at the moment. I'm not sure we've ever needed a jubilee quite as much as we do now. Not only is there the total societal collapse of the entire world, but also the um, absolute devastation of British politics as a functioning entity, uh, <laughs> as manifested by the um, uh, current Prime Minister, the various reports into him, and the fact that he is still the current Prime Minister and not the formal Prime Minister. But, I mean, it's wonderful that you're both here for... This mm. jubilee. Um, it's the I mean, only reason I came, Andy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very exciting time. Uh, the latest uh, tributes include that the DNA of all British citizens is to be rebranded as ENA, um, standing for Elizabethos nucleic acid, to pay tribute to the role that the Queen has played in defining exactly how British we all are. And possible, re uh, the government's going to change the requir uh, entry requirements for people wishing to move to this country. They must have at least 50% of the same DNA as the Queen, of course, natural-born Brits have a solid 80 to 85% just by birth, whereas various <laughs> non-Brits at large roaming the un-Elizabeth II world carry a maximum of 3% of the world's uh, of, of the Queen's DNA. A course of injections over a couple of decades can actually turn a non-Brit into a perfectly serviceable Brit if they sing the national anthem in the shower every morning during that time and wear Union Jack underpants on birthdays, Christmases and all days of royal significance. So, you know... I think that shows what an open-minded nation that, that we have become. Yeah, and if, if a mere pawn walks from one side of the UK to the other one step at a time, when they reach the other side, they turn into the Queen. Yes. Yeah. They become a Queen. Yeah. You often hear talks of people walking from Land's End to John O'Groats, <laughs> from you know the tip of Cornwall to the tip of Scotland. Um, but if you come the other way, you, that, yep. that 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 legislation. You win. Will, yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, you know, I'm a big fan of the monarchy. Always have been, but. I've lost a bit of interest in the monarchy when a couple of things happened. One, since they lost their power to behead people. Right. It was far more interesting to be in front of a monarch well, who had absolute power to behead you, as opposed to a monarch... Well, I think that is one of the reasons we voted for Brexit, to get, you know, get those traditional British freedoms back. And secondly, as an Indian subject of the empire, it is now voluntary for me to come and pay tribute to the Queen. Not Highly nice. uninteresting. Not compulsory. <laughs> George V... You know, if he showed up in India, it was compulsory for an Indian prince to show up and, and uh, pay obeisance. I, I, I think that's a word that came out of the empire. We just had to bow and say, you know, don't take away my kingdom. Uh, you can charge whatever tax you want. Give me the security of the British army. They had to do all that. You know, you have by force. You had to show up. Now it's like, do you want to come? Do you know what? It's right. fine. It's, yeah. it's very, I don't know if I like this monarchy. Right, okay. But I'm, just too much choice. Right, interesting you know, to, hear, to hear that, you know, that rare argument in favour of the full re-establishment of, uh, of the British Raj, Anavab. But yeah, thanks. But on the Bugle, we like to you know, put alternative viewpoints. So. Yeah. I mean, even if not the Raj as a whole, but just the power of the monarchy. Right, okay. Yeah. You know, just... Putting just, the rah-rah-rah into Raj. <laughs> <laughs> just the rabbit. You know, just get the beheadings back and get some power back, like at least to put you in shackles or something. So I'm like, right. my God, man, this is the queen. Yeah. 
Well, I think I mean she'd appreciate she's ninety six now, and um, you know she's been restricted as a monarch for pretty <laughs> much all the seventy years she's been professional, uh, professionally monarching. So yeah, maybe I think she's earned the right to to bring back some of those old techniques. Um, it, just recently, a, a space project has been announced by the um, British government to project a hologram of the Queen's beatifically smiling face permanently onto the skies above Britain. It will cost only £7 billion a month, which seems like a bargain uh, for what it is. Cynics have pointed out that the giant Space Queen face may not be bi visible when it's cloudy, which it sometimes is in Britain, despite Her Majesty's presence and all her selfless work over the last 70 years. But the knowledge that it is there could boost the economy by up to 287%, according to a visibly emotional uh, Frampton Halfbree, the Minister for Boosting Britishness and Public <laughs> Joy. So a lot of exciting things happening right now. I am just so happy to be here for Stonehenge, you know, for Stonehenge <laughs> to fully reach its absolute potential. We've not wondered for thousands of years what this mysterious henge was for, hmm. and now we know it, it was for hosting eight projected pictures of the Queen at various ages. Um, I, I've never seen such a noble monument so ennobled. Well, it's interesting that because you know, Stonehenge traditionally only works at midsummer as a, as a henge. But <laughs> so what this suggests is that because these pictures of the Queen have been projected on Stonehenge now, that we are at the exact midpoint of her reign. <laughs> so we are... 70 years into the 140 years of gloriousness. I mean, do you guys feel enough is being done for the Jubilee? Like, they're planning no, parties and so on, people no are way. drinking. But, <laughs> for example, I recently saw there was a show in London where the various members of ABBA are coming back to life in a sort of 3D simulated kind of show where they'll be... What is that word? Where you that's projected? Projected. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So the the but the most important part was that this show was created by the members of ABBA. Yes. So it's it's sort of very highly technological version of hey, remember when we used to? That's yeah. Yeah, and and then they'll be in concert in three D doing that. Now, couldn't somebody? Just bring all the old British monarchs back to congratulate the Queen. I mean, I know you have a favourite, Charles the First. Uh, you had done a show well, in, near a place where he was tried yeah, and beheaded. I did that. I did. Yeah. I did a, a show in the room outside which yes. Charles the First was executed in 1649. Yeah, and I think it's called the Banqueting Hall on Whitehall, and it was this huge, great, echoey room. Yes, and he was executed on the balcony outside, and it led me to think that. The last thing that went through his head, because this room behind him was so echoey, was the echo of himself saying, ow, which <laughs> must have been galling at best. But yes, yeah, so I did, yeah. I'm not to make him my favourite monarch, but, you know. He, um, You've been in the same room as him? Yeah, it? I have, yeah. yeah. So yes. this is what I mean. There's a little Henry VIII pat on the back to Elizabeth II. Yeah. We'd like to see all of them back in concert at the O2. I think, I think that could work. And it's interesting you should say that, because um, as part of the, uh, the, the Jubilee celebrations, all of Shakespeare's history plays featuring British monarchs will now feature a pre-show warning for audiences that not all monarchs have been quite as flawless as our current and eternal future queen. Mm -hmm. There's also a special edition of Richard III, which is going to be performed at the even more royal uh, Shakespeare Company, as it's been renamed, in which Queen Elizabeth II appears on the battlefield at Bosworth at the, the climactic moment, the conclusion of the Wars of the Roses, and formulates a truce between the Yorkists and the lanky, 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 lanky Lancastrians um, that result in Richard III not being kebabbed to death or swapping the nation for a horsey or getting a lift back to the car park. And then she reigns over us for the next 537 years to date 
and counting. So these are, I mean, it's all. That's incredible. Tremendous. So she tremendous. would be Elizabeth the first and second and together. Yes, yeah. As a Elizabeth so, one and a half. So I, don't know if, I don't know if that makes a one and a half or three. Do you average it out or do you add it together? <laughs> you add it together. Or sure. maybe you multiply and then she's still Elizabeth the second, which might be easier for her. <laughs> Reprinting the currency. Probably. I mean, if she takes after her father as Elizabeth the first, you know, King Henry the Eighth was not big on minimalism, so let's make it three. No. Three. Okay. <laughs> um, also, have you read up on the events that are happening in the Jubilee? They're just absolutely wildly specific and pointless. There's this parade constituted of all these people, a lot of people operating puppets symbolising things, mm. and then they're from, so like there's a, a choir of left-handed school children from a small town outside Brighton operating an 18-foot puppet of a hand that will do the distinctive QE2 wave to symbolise <laughs> her stalwart contribution to England's tr proud tradition of being patronising. It's all, it's that kind of thing. And you sort of need a... a, 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 a manual to know what's going past you because it's just going to look like a bunch of <laughs> going for a walk. <laughs> She's absolutely right. Is, is she going to be the longest reigning monarch of all time ever, ever, ever yeah, recorded? I think she's about two years away from breaking the all-time record for any monarch anywhere. Comes wow. to be already the British champion. Yeah. Longest reigning monarch. Um, plus, you know, she gets awarded extra years. as Because, I mean, often if you're in a job for a long time, you get a you get a bonus, don't you? A so bonus, yeah. You think maybe they'd just tag on another 20... So actually, she's 90 But not years. counting the ones who are the you know, direct personification of God, yeah. who's obviously eternal. That doesn't... Yeah. Does, how many and, jubilees does and also, God I mean, get? There's, there's been a number of pretty low-quality monarchs that maybe <laughs> she could be reattributed, like, um, you know, King John. Oh, yeah. I think Subpar, and he had, what, yeah. 16 years as king? So we can tag them on. Yeah. That would improve life for... Yeah, British people in the early 13th century and mean that the Queen is now way out on her own as the longest-serving monarch. I think I've solved the equation of the Jubilee, which is its uh, representative group uh, plus large pointless thing um, <laughs> equals metaphor for something. Right. That's... That's a very complex mathematical equation you've <laughs> thrown into the yes, that, that, It's quite impressive to come up with that level of maths the day after a 24-hour <laughs> flight. I thought, I thought about it the whole way. <laughs> and a good summary of the nation. And I think Jubilee celebrations have calmed down a little bit. I was doing a bit of research on long Indian emperors. And the longest we had was Emperor Akbar, 50 years. Yeah. And he celebrated it by smashing the heads of rival, basically rival tribes who were up against him um, with elephants. So he brought in elephants and he smashed the heads of rival prisoners he'd taken at war. And there was a big celebration. So People ate and drank. Right. So To clarify, were the, were the elephants on the ends of mallets? or were the <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't there. <laughs> it was 15, 12. But I can check. I could ask a friend who attended. He had a pass. Um, mm -hmm. But clearly celebrations have calmed down a lot. I mean, now yeah. it's capoeira, flav waving, gin and tonic, yeah. campari. It's very different yeah. now. Well, that's because of the woke lobby. They won't even crush people's heads with elephants anymore. Now, I, I know... We've lost something as a species, I think. I want, to talk, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, speaking of which, which is that there will be a cascade of pensioners in mobility scooters dressed as flamingos. That's good. Right. And... I Will they be literally cascading over a cliff into the sea? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Nothing I hate more than old people. <laughs> um, no. Apart from I, old people dressed as flamingos. Uh, old people dressed as flamingos. No, I, I, I'm a, it's a terrible thing for me because I'm a big fan of old people. Yeah. They've beaten the odds, at least. Uh, and not such a fan of flamingos. So it's sort of a right. singularity of, of contradiction in place right there. This is an actual event? I mean, yes. Oh, this is part of the Jubilee Parade. 
uh, which is why I feel like I have to address it because I know that there will be listeners who have the the Jubilee program out eagerly in front of them with that bit circled, waiting pantingly to hear what I have to say about it, which is that it's shit. <laughs> it's a shit idea and it'll be badly executed. I don't like it and I hope this scooters break down. See, this is the thing. Some of the events, I don't even know if they're ironic or real. <laughs> they have a bunch of old people dressed as birds. Everyone's doing this. No, no, no. It's, it, they'll be do- it's Britain. They'll be doing the parade yeah. sarcastically. <laughs> of course they won't. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I mean, those are, are some extraordinary things, including the government uh, in the last week suggestion bringing back the old imperial measurements as part of the, the, the Jubilee Festival of Nostalgic Patriotism uh, and also a celebration of our freedom from the decimalisation that we like to think Brussels inflicted on us, even though that, that isn't technically uh, true. Uh, so going back to these old imperial measurements, now bearing in mind, government statistics have suggested that 17 million adults, almost half of the working age population of England, have the numeracy level expected of primary school children, <laughs> bringing back these mathematically baffling measurements is maybe not the best way to boost the economy. Um, so, I mean, for those of you unfamiliar with the way we used to measure things, for example, in uh, distance, there were eight furlongs in a mile, 10 chains in the furlong, 60 seat, 66 feet in a chain, which, of course, is also 11, 11 fathoms long, and you need 5,280 fathoms to make up a league, and to understand all of that, it helps to drink three quarts of mead and or a gill and a half of whiskey. <laughs> then, of course, you've got 13 squabbles in a blapard, nine blapards in a gnert, half a gnert makes up a watch-em-a-forksworth, which is the same as 24 hog bollocks, a weirdo's dozen fallaciacs, or two family fun buckets. <laughs> and the government has been accused of trying to weaponize nostalgia at this time where there's a cost of living crisis that is causing havoc around the country. And I guess the thinking is, let's give them some credit, because we do, we do criticise the government quite a bit on, the, on this show, that if you can't afford a pound of potatoes, that's better than if you can't afford a kilogram of potatoes, because you're actually losing less food. If it's just a pound, because that is 453.6 grams is, is a pound, rather than the 1,000 grams. So you actually only be... 0.4536 times as hungry. So you can see the logic. Well, it also won't matter when a pound of potatoes costs as much as a kilo of potatoes used to be because you won't be able to do the conversion in your head. It'll be much, much more confusing uh, to, have to try and do the conversion. All I can say is when I saw this announcement, I thought I would like to put my foot near his inch. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, origin of the term Jubilee uh, actually goes mm. way back. Uh, it's William... <laughs> no. William the Conqueror's 20th anniversary I'm celebrations. I'm in the room and there's a fog. In, uh, in 1086, 20 years on the throne, and he converted to Ju- Judaism, hence Jubilee. Uh, <laughs> <stuck ever> <laughs> I saw that coming from so far away. <laughs> Journalists are super excited. They're sort of preemptively speculating that the Queen may or may not but come out on her balcony to watch this parade go past, and I just think... That is the epitome of the monarchy. People are, you know, dancing around in their mobility scooter flamingos. They're operating 25-foot-high puppets of, you know, children cleaning cars. And and she might come out on her balcony, and that's the news story. Yes. Well, it's very exciting. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than seeing a... An old woman wave on a balcony. I genuinely saw a a news piece where the headline was... uh, Notable times Queen Elizabeth stood on the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think that, you know... This makes the whole nation feel creepy. Yeah, it was the... I mean, the, the Hindu was particularly spectacular. <laughs> 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 I, 
Is that where she mooned the nation? <laughs> That's what that big balcony is there for. <laughs> Indian news now. One thing she won't be eating, the Queen, at uh, her Jubilee celebration, or indeed at any point in the future, if news reports are to be believed, is a mango. Um, because uh, Annie Vab is our mango correspondent, um, uh, bad news, the mango crop is, is failing. Terrible news, Andy. I mean, I've been your mango correspondent for years now, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and it's blistering heat in India. New York Times wrote the story. It's devastated the crop. Uh, the soul of the farmer shudders at seeing these fruitless trees. That's what the New York Times said. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's so hot. In March and April, you need a certain kind of heat for the mango to blossom. And it's been so hot. The mango, How hot has it been, sir? Uh, it's been 44 degrees. Um, uh, and in some parts of India, it's gone up to 47. Uh, it's been so hot that uh, I'm sitting in Andy's house. <laughs> That's how hot it's been. Fruits are exploding. Lots of crop, uh, you know, wheat the, the, that grows this time of year. We cannot supply to the rest of the world. Um, and indeed, the question being asked is an existential one in India, which is what is India without the mango? You know, it's a question I've asked about the world as well. You know, what is the United Kingdom without Winston Churchill, the Queen and Andy Zaltzman? You know, <laughs> what is indeed Australia without Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, Don Bradman and Alice Fraser? And what is India, you know, without Mahatma Gandhi and the mango? <laughs> Just, that was these... a great kids book, by the way. <laughs> so Russell Crowe's New Zealander. That's one of the problems. <laughs> that is why Australia is losing its status in the world because one of its leading people who's considered Australia is not even from Australia. <laughs> That's part of the problem. Um, so we we have a huge mango problem. We may not, and as fellow bugler Harry Kondabolu has talked about in his stand-up, you know, we don't eat the mango. We uh, make love to the mango while he, eating. He loves his mangoes. He does. Yeah. He does. He's written an entire stand-up special yeah. about it. And... Um, we have no mangoes this year, so there's really nothing unique about the Indian fruit landscape. We have nothing to present to the world uh, except Prime Minister Modi, and <laughs> he's not a mango. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously on one level, anyway, this is a story of great human tragedy for the many farmers dependent on the mango crop, and it's also another warning about the whole total societal collapse of the world shtick and all the hoo-ha around the devastation of the planet and the woke lobby whinging about the end of all viable life as we know it. But on another level, I want my f***ing mangoes! <laughs> because the mango is objectively one of the natural world's greatest creations. In fact, I've been doing a knockout competition to find out what is the natural world's greatest creation. Uh, I've got to the quarterfinal stage. It's mangoes against waterfalls for the right to play sunlit mountain range in the semi-final. Mango had some uh, uh, pretty easy wins in the early rounds. Saw off wasps, no problem. Um, drizzle. Not a contest. Then some more impressive victories as the tournament progressed and the matches became more competitive. Uh, mangoes beat rhinoceroses, <laughs> windswept cliffs, and a sensational clash against coral reefs in the last 16 <laughs> that went to a penalty shootout. But, um, I mean, Alice, I mean, the mango is a pretty big deal in Australia as it's well. It's a pretty big, big deal in Australia. Usually around the time of my birthday is what I call Mango Week. No one else calls it, but it's a special holiday in my house. It's where you can afford a crate, uh, like a tray of about 26 mangoes uh, for less than $20. It used to happen when I was a child. Now, no longer, alas, but and then you would just eat nothing but mangoes and make yourself incredibly sick. <laughs> just eat mangoes for weeks and weeks. Uh, and it, yeah, Weirdly, one of those things that even when you get sick after eating too many mangoes, they don't, you don't, it doesn't turn you off them. 
Yeah, it does not. I mean, that's the history of India in a thousand years. People eat mangoes <laughs> and fight over whose mango is the best. <laughs> it's still there. And one of the things is Indians are surprisingly getting along with each other because summer is when you fight over which part of India has the best mango. And now when you don't have any mangoes to fight over, you surprisingly have nothing to talk about. <laughs> um, and the, the thing is, that I think the only answer is now, you know, what's going to happen with ABBA and the Jubilee, which is... 3D mangoes <laughs> will have to be created. Yeah, that's so. an interesting one. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the 3D hologram mango. The hologram mango. That's the word I've been looking for. Yeah. The hologram. Thank you, Andy. We will be doing um, an ABBA-style uh, bugle show featuring a hologram John Oliver at some point, for sure, <laughs> in the next... <laughs> Yes, years. it'll involve projection, but it's mainly just sort of emotionally projecting our childhood issues onto the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson update now. And um, the Sue Gray report was finally published uh, last week um, after uh, considerable delays for various reasons. Um, for those of you without the time or inclination to wade through the full report, which uh, comes in around about 60 pages, we have marched it down through an online condenso summaristicator and then translated it into two languages for you. In traditional English, it translates into a savage indictment of a self-indulgent culture of crass political indifference. In Boris Johnsonian English, it translates to a full vindication. Um, <laughs> It's uh, if this had all come out at the time, it would have been, I think, almost certainly terminal to Boris Johnson as prime minister. But there's this kind of bizarre way in which just the the fact that it's come out so slowly has sort of bought him time, rather than you know, it's kind of been a gradual investigation by investigation, drip, drip, dribble. Because time is not only a great healer; it is also a phenomenal amnesiac and <laughs> it sort of deadens the we've all been there we've all come home to find a dead unicorn on the sofa haven't we yeah. and now initially there's shock there's disgust you know it's hard to live with the stench but gradually as humans we we get used to it and and as the decay sets in it even gets interesting watching the process and eventually it's just a perfectly normal unicorn skeleton that has become part of the furniture <laughs> nothing exceptional when visitors ask why you don't get rid of it you say well a none of your f***ing business. <laughs> B, he'll be right as rain in no time. And C, if we're talking about home improvements, don't you think we should all be focusing on the damp issue from the bath I've left running for the last six weeks first <laughs> rather than the dead unicorn? And that's essentially the situation we are in with... Uh, with the Sue Gray report, do you uh, must have read it on the flight, Alice? I imagine it was. Uh... Yes, it was riveting, riveting reading the Sue Gray report. I, I feel like this is the, the tactic of politicians nowadays: is they'll leak things before there is proof, and then by the time there is proof, people's outrage has has run out um, because outrage prices have shot through the roof. You can only sustain outrage for so long before it becomes weary indifference and <laughs> a sort of a sour contempt that erodes your very soul, um, which is, you know, fun, but not quite as um, uh, aligned with political action. I have a question for the both of you. I mean, yeah. I don't live in a Western-style democracy. Um, I live in some gentle, gentle fascism. But um, <laughs> in, in your work... The best kind of fascism, it has to be said. Gentle is the best. Um, one of the things the Prime Minister said is... Your Prime Minister said is that, well, accountability, accountability is a variable word. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know what he meant by that. that apparently... You don't have to be entirely accountable oh, no, for no. breaking the law. Well, no, it's like the, the phrase, and he used this, he said he takes full responsibility. Now, bearing in mind this is 2022, um, 
taking full responsibility means saying you're taking full responsibility and then taking absolutely no responsibility. <laughs> so it's the same with accountability. <laughs> um, it, it's just a word. It's just it's just sounds. I mean, you know, it's it's a social construct essentially. If we, if no, if you just before language existed. If you'd said accountability, no one would have known what you meant. And really, this is just getting back to that elemental state of human existence. And I, th- I think we're all better for it. So it's a hologram of morality instead of <laughs> real morality. Well, I mean, that, I mean, the thing is, so why is Johnson held on to power? I mean, fundamentally, his driving political philosophy is that he should be in power. And you cannot spell failure of leadership without lure of leadership (laughs) so this post-ethical morality averse landscape of modern politics we live in it's just turned out to be another everyday commoner garden survivable massive embarrassment uh, for boris johnson the undisputed michael jordan of inexplicably shambling through despite everything so he said he was humbled which was i mean boris johnson saying he was humble he's a man who wears humility as comfortably as a vegan pope wears a tiger skin gimp outfit. <laughs> and similarly, you know, if Boris Johnson can say he's humbled, I would like to say that I am absolutely ripped. I bench 480 and I'm world 800 meter record holder, having just this afternoon dipped under the magical one, mi- one minute 40 second mark. Well, I don't know what the vegan pope's into, but don't kink shame. <laughs> <laughs> I know a very nice vegan guy who's into um, leather fetish gear. It's a very conflicted sexual scenario. But he also, is he also devout and religious? <laughs> well, I think uh, it depends if you count veganism as a religion. <laughs> it is to many. Now, uh, you guys, uh, and maybe you're coming to this, Andy, and I just have a quick question. You guys have something called the Ministerial Code of Ethics. Yes. Yeah, we don't have that. Um, <laughs> and apparently now you don't either. No, well, no. I mean, the thing is, we have this code of ethics, and it's turned out it's really inconvenient if you're a massively unethical politician. So, therefore, uh, Boris Johnson is essentially saying that it's kind of voluntary, and, you know, if you do something naughty, just fuck it. This so, is, I just feel like we've really been underrating hypocrisy for far too long. Yes. Because it's not that politicians weren't always it's that they used to pretend that they weren't. Yeah. I, I never realised until now how valuable that pretense was, that implication. So, yeah, so we're in a more honest age of open hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, no, we're in a more honest age of open shitness. They're, just, they're, they're not even hypocrites. They're not even like, I'm not shit. They're like, yeah, I'm shit, but it's charming, question mark, question mark. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, if you guys don't have a ministerial code of ethics to violate, then you haven't violated anything. Exactly. It's, it's a very good way uh, around it. And it was a kind of strange line of defence that Boris Johnson took. They shouldn't to say have that it in code. They should have it in plain English. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever read the Magna Carta? That is, that is code. Um, the, um, so his defence was essentially to say that he didn't know what was going on amongst his staff or in his house. So it's a kind of strange line of defence for a Prime Minister to say, I am completely f***ing clueless and therefore I should stay in my job. But that's that's where we are. So without a ministerial code of ethics, conceivably a minister could just run around naked in Parliament shouting obscenities while doing cartwheels. Yes. And that would not violate any uh, particular it's, code. You know, it's, it's merely perception, isn't it? You know. <laughs> Again, it's all, what does violation mean without meaning? Um, and, of course, one person's massively incriminating, overwhelming body of evidence in a, is another person's, yeah, whatever. 
It's fair, fair. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Butte. It's been lovely to have you in my slightly chaotic dining room, surrounded by pictures of old dead cricketers <laughs> and a uh, 125-year-old cricket bat in the corner and a sculpture of my own head as a child. So, yeah, it makes a, a different kind of recording studio. We've enjoyed it. I, yeah. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. It's been a genuine delight. I feel very happy. I'm very humbled to be here. I feel like I'm somewhere between <laughs> like a Freemason society meeting. Are you humbled in a Boris Johnson kind of way? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A variable accountability, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I also feel like I'm at your jubilee, Auntie. <laughs> <laughs> Every day's a jubilee where I am. Um, uh, Alice, you are doing shows. Uh, that, I mean, you didn't come here just to record the bugle. I, <laughs> I did not come that. here just to record the bugle. I am doing shows, not very many. I'm, I'm be, trying to be a reasonable human being about the process of being a, a new parent and a comedian at the same time. So, uh, find the um, uh, I will be announcing them on Twitter at alliterative a l i t e r a t i v e and Instagram the same address. Or uh, all of my stuff is on my Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Alice Fraser, or my website. There are links to all the gigs and ticket things. I'll also be in Edinburgh. Also, I have a podcast, um, which is the, the sister podcast to this podcast. It's the Glossy Magazine to the Bugle's Audio Newspaper for Visual World. It's called The Gargle, and Avab is sometimes on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should come on one day. Yes. I've been quite busy, but yes. Yes, yeah, we've Let's been missing again. you at, down at Gargle headquarters. <laughs> and, and it covers topics from this planet and various other planets as well. No, it's, that was the other one. Oh, that was sorry. the last post. <laughs> <laughs> That's still there. 366 days of absolute <laughs> nonsense still available on the internet. That is just, you know, a summary of the average Earth year now. <laughs> and if I have any shows to... Well, yeah, plug? I mean, the reason... Yeah, I'm doing some shows around the UK and, and they're, uh, you know, I tweet about them. But uh, the main thing is I did a, a Amazon special for Soho on the Empire, and which is out. And it's really nice to hear, you know, feedback from people on Twitter. Uh, feedback like... Uh, where is it? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd send them the link and they write back, oh. So I really like the fact that, that modern entertainment in the streaming world is, is so engaging with the audience that you send it out into the black hole and nothing comes back. So it's, uh, but it's streaming on Amazon Prime UK and it's about the empire. And apparently now there are other topics I should write about, but uh, I didn't think there was any other topic than the empire to write about. So... Uh, you can hear uh, me hosting the news quiz for the next couple of weeks. We're towards the end of the middle series of the year. That is available on BBC Sounds. We will now play you out with some lies about our premium-level voluntary subscribers. Uh, you can no longer uh, get a lie told about you. We will get through all those who have subscribed before the lie scheme ended. But we do now have a wall of fame uh, for our premium-level voluntary subscribers uh, and uh, bonus bits of merch as well for premium level voluntary subscribers so do um join the scheme uh, or to make a one-off or a current contribution of any size to help keep the bugle free flourishing and independent go to the buglepodcast.com and click the donate button david miles was once given a voucher for a free trip to madagascar by a local travel company only to be disappointed on reading the small print that the company pledged only to contribute to the trip an inflatable dinghy, 50 tins of soup and a guide to marine life that gave tips on what things are and are not edible when attempting to survive alone on the ocean. I was tempted, says David, 
I must say that I don't really like soup and I'd lost my tin opener in any case, so I had to turn it down. Craig Worsley Grace was disappointed to read that spiders have no mental framework for appreciating the aesthetic beauty of their own webs. What a real pity for the arachnid community, laments Craig. Sure, I'm sure they appreciate the practicality of their impressive webwork, but imagine seeing a spider's web glistening with dew on a chilly spring morning and thinking, shit, my office is damp, rather than, wow, isn't that wonderful? What a sad way to live. Due to a misprint in a library book, Julie Nosko has spent much of her adult life thinking that Socrates, the celebrity ancient Greek philosophy whiz and all-round smartass, was sentenced to be executed by having to consume French fish. My book definitely said he had to poisson himself, says Julie. Of course I thought it was a bit odd, but this happened 2,400 years ago, and as per their vases, they did some pretty weird shit, so it did sort of add up. Sajan Hira once calculated that if you strang together all the tape from cassette tapes of prog rock albums released in the 1970s, you could probably lasso Jupiter and fling it out of the solar system. I didn't bother doing the maths very accurately, says Sajan, because I knew I wouldn't have the time, or more importantly the funding, to put my scheme into practice. But I've always hated Jupiter as a planet. To my mind, being a big ball of gas is no use to anyone. So I found the idea that I could theoretically wang it into outer space strangely comforting. And finally, Philip Reeves doesn't know how he would feel if he was a horse. I hope I would come to terms with my species' declining influence in society, says Philip, and accept it as an inevitable part of the advance of technology, and as a chance to get back to my innate horsic self. But I can't help thinking I'd miss the feeling of playing a crucial role. I mean, just being a horse is okay, don't get me wrong, but aside from that, you're little more than a conduit for the social curse of gambling, an anachronism for ceremonial pageantry, or an excuse for police officers not to do their own dirty work with crowds. I'll be honest, I'm conflicted, but luckily, I'm not a horse, so it's okay. Here endeth this week's lies. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.